Welcome to this audio supplement to our program in Immunotherapy of Cancer, in which we present additional interview content with our faculty. To begin, we go back to Dr. David McDermott as he puts Immunotherapy of Cancer in historical context. So there's been a long history of the application of immunotherapy for patients with kidney cancer going back 20 or 30 years at least. Some of the initial things we saw in the clinic that led to the application of immunotherapy had to do with, for example, patients who had had surgery on their primary tumor in the setting of metastatic disease, some of whom went on to develop spontaneous regressions of their tumor. There was a sense that maybe there was something, potentially the immune system controlling their disease. That plus the fact that standard therapies like chemotherapy and radiation typically were pretty inactive for this disease, you know, led to the application of these, at that time, novel cytokine-based therapies, medications like interleukin-2 and interferon. So it's in that setting we had a sense that there was a proof of principle that you could modulate the immune system and create a durable benefit for patients, but there were always these blocks. Most patients were not getting this benefit. And one of the interesting things over the last 10 years or so is we have a much better understanding of why the immune system does not effectively treat solid tumors, and you know what are the pathways that both activate the immune system and then also turn off the immune system. And it turns out that not only do we understand a little bit more, I should say maybe a lot more, about these pathways that shut off the immune response, these so-called immune checkpoints, but we have the ability to block them. We have the ability to stop the natural shutoff that exists because it turns out your immune system is really not designed from an evolutionary standpoint to fight cancer. It's designed to fight infection. So once the infection is controlled, the immune response needs to be tamped down. And these pathways are the pathways that shut off activated T cells. Two of the most important are CTLA-4, unactivated T-cells, and PD-1. And now that we have antibodies that can block the interaction between these immune checkpoints and their ligands, we can reinvigorate an immune response to cancer and lead to some impressive clinical results, not only in kidney cancer, but in other solid tumors as well. Do either one of these interventions lead to autoimmune problems? Absolutely. They both do. And interestingly, patients who develop autoimmune side effects while on the drug are actually more likely to benefit probably with both agents. So it's been known for a long time that patients who develop, for example, vitiligo, when they have melanoma and they get IL-2, they're more likely to get a durable benefit. Also, thyroiditis after autoimmune thyroiditis after treatment with these agents also leads to a more durable benefit. And probably what that is a marker of is breaking tolerance, meaning you're activating the immune system. It's targeting both malignant, in the case of vitiligo, and benign melanocytes. And it's those patients where you can break tolerance that you're more likely to get a dramatic long-term effect. And it may turn out that these patients who where you can break tolerance actually in some ways have a defect in their immune response, meaning they're more prone to autoimmunity, more prone to being able to break tolerance, maybe less prone, for example, in the case of interleukin-2 to have a dramatic rise in their regulatory T cells. It's these people who in some ways might be more likely to benefit from these immune stimulants. In the same way, the agents that are now entering the clinic, these checkpoint inhibitors, we also see a variety of side effects that also look like, although not identical, they look like other autoimmune conditions. So, for example, the common side effects with CTLA-4 antibodies and PD-1, PD-L1 antibodies are things like diarrhea from colitis, autoimmune hepatitis, skin rash, 
endocrinopathies like hypopituitarism from inflammation of the pituitary. You know, those are all things that we see with autoimmune disease that we probably create in some patients with these agents. And it requires us, many of us who haven't looked at some of these issues since medical school, to go back and learn some, you know, our endocrinopathies, learn a little bit more about rheumatology, some of which we might have forgotten. But it requires you to update your medicine, not just in oncology, to apply these agents to your patients. So you'll talk about this, but it seems like the most excitement I'm hearing about is the combinations of anti-CTLA-4 and anti-PD-1 antibodies together, for example, ipilimumab and nivolumab. Is that also a question in RCC? Yes, it's certainly been looked at in RCC in a small phase one trial that Hans Hammers presented at ASCO this year. It was a look both at nivolumab in combination with ipilimumab, as you mentioned, CTLA-4 and PD-1 blockade, but also nivolumab with two TKIs, pizopinib and sunitinib. And we saw similar outcomes with a variety of these combinations, meaning when you put the two drugs together, we seem to see higher response rates. So with both the addition of CTLA-4 blockade or TKIs, the response rates on this phase one trial went up. In the case of the CTLA-4 and PD-1 blockade, it went up north of 40% as far as a response rate. So maybe that's a doubling of the response rate to single-agent blockade, which is what we've seen in melanoma, that the response rate is at least two times higher when you add a CTLA-4 blocking antibody to a PD-1 blocking antibody. But you're also increasing the toxicity. That said, we're not adding new side effects, but the types of side effects we're seeing, we're seeing them earlier and we're seeing more severe side effects. So it takes more attention to manage patients on the combination of CTLA-4 and PD-1 blockade. Patients need to be in good physical condition, need to be well-educated about managing the side effects. You need a good team of people to manage them. But the benefits may outweigh the side effects if we can see, in my opinion, the long-term benefit increase, if we can see the remission rate increase, if we can see the tail on the curve improve. And we hope to see that. Right now, that combination is going to be studied in the front line in a phase three trial, looking at CTLA-4 and PD-1 blockade in comparison to sunitinib in untreated patients. What about the use of the newer agents, the checkpoint inhibitors in patients with autoimmune problems? There's not a lot of data with the PD-1 class of drugs because patients with known autoimmune conditions were excluded from those trials. So much of the data we have is just emerging now that the agent can be given off a study in the case of pembrolizumab. I think in general, what I say is there obviously are different types of autoimmune disease. And if people have certain autoimmune conditions where if you amplify the condition, it could be fatal, then you have to proceed with caution. Or obviously, if it could be severely disabling, you have to proceed with caution. So for example, patients with bad Crohn's disease, you know, history of flares, a history of surgeries, a need for immunosuppression, you know, those patients are almost certainly going to be made worse by checkpoint blockade, and you need to proceed with caution. And I am pretty hesitant to treat those patients with active inflammatory bowel disease. You know, that said, patients with a distant history who are not on treatment, who haven't had major surgeries or complications, you know, sometimes those patients can be treated, but often I try to endoscope them before treating them to see if they have sort of subclinical disease, have a long conversation with their gastroenterologist if they have one. However, there is obviously a constellation of autoimmune diseases. So for example, if someone has psoriasis, 
or even something like rheumatoid arthritis, where you could make them more uncomfortable and have quality of life issues that sometimes can be significant, particularly in the case of rheumatoid arthritis. It's a discussion, at least, because it's this threat, the immediate threat of the cancer, as you point out, which can be very quickly fatal, versus the uncomfortableness or the misery of making their autoimmune disease worse. Oftentimes, we'll treat those patients, and then once they've had a benefit, hopefully, then go back to treat their autoimmune disease more aggressively. We have experience with this for many years with interleukin-2 and have been able to successfully treat some of those patients. Right now, there's not enough prospective data with the PD-1 class of agents because they haven't been around long enough to say anything definitively, but it's certainly worth a conversation for many patients with autoimmune disease. For something like RA, what do you see in terms of recovery? So let's say you treat a patient, they develop a real exacerbation of the RA. Is it reversible? In many patients, it is, but it often takes months to get better, and it often requires, you know, the reinstitution of their prior RA treatment. Usually, my first step when seeing someone who we might consider for interleukin-2 or CTLA-4 blockade with IPI is to see, you know, are they off medications? You know, talk to their rheumatologist. How do they feel about taking them off medications? and see how they do off medications if they're on them. So that's sort of the first step, is what happens to their symptoms if they're on immune suppression when you stop the methotrexate or something like that. And I think if they can tolerate that first step, then it's worth a conversation. If their symptoms get a lot more debilitating, then it's pretty easy to know that you're gonna make that a lot worse and it may become hard to control. But it's interesting, the immunosuppression is not there. At the time you treat them, there's a suggestion And I mean, I don't want to overstate this, but that the patients who already are prone to autoimmunity may be somewhat more likely to benefit from these class of drugs, not to say we should treat all of these patients, but we certainly need to study them and we need to gather data to see, you know, what are the true outcomes. So let's talk about some of the cases you brought in here today, beginning with your 60-year-old man with disease progression on high-dose interleukin-2. So the first case is a patient who had failed standard therapy with kidney cancer and then went on nivolumab. And what happened to him is in the first cycle or two of his treatment, on initial scan, he developed many what looked like new metastases in his liver. And our initial response to this patient was, well, this is progression. He's rapidly progressing, so let's put him back on a targeted agent But he felt well, and in some ways his liver-associated blood tests were actually somewhat improved. So we held tight and we kept treating him. And then pretty quickly thereafter, he developed a near resolution of his liver metastases. It was sort of a dramatic early sort of look at what some people call a tumor flare, which is not necessarily tumor worsening through, you know, immune checkpoint blockade, But because there are probably microscopic disease that are now being recognized by an inflammatory infiltrate, they're now able to be recognized on a CT scan. So what appears to be new lesions is really just inflammation. And so it becomes a situation where sometimes we allow patients to progress on a second scan before we stop their treatment, these sort of immune responses that require a delicate balance. Obviously, if a patient is symptomatically worse, then you can't necessarily treat for an extra cycle to scan them again. But we often see improvement in some patients who initially have progression of their disease. Yeah, I've heard the term pseudoprogression applied to this. I guess another possibility might be that it's actually the tumor getting worse. Correct. And it just takes a little while for the immunotherapy to work. I assume that these lesions, some of them in these cases, have been biopsied? 
Correct. And I think when we initially learned of this phenomenon, as you called it pseudoprogression, was in the case of melanoma, when we had patients developing what we thought were new brain metastases, and we took people to surgery for symptomatic brain mets, and when these tumors came out, we found necrotic melanocytes, a dead tumor, and an immune infiltrate. And this gave us the confidence, I think, to go forward in subsequent trials treating patients through these findings assuming they were clinically stable, meaning in the face of, you know, many of the times when you see new lesions, it's just progression, the treatment's not working. But in some cases, it's pseudoprogression, and the treatment will eventually lead to an improvement as the immune response continues, but waiting is possible if the patient is clinically stable. Yeah, and the next case is incredible. I never heard about this before, the 66-year-old man Right. So an interesting patient, once again, with kidney cancer, who was enrolled in a clinical trial. He had failed several prior therapies with a pdl one antibody. And early on in his treatment, he presented with a sudden onset of double vision, muscle pain, weakness, joint aches, a general malaise. Now, obviously, some of those symptoms are common with these agents, but obviously the double vision was very concerning. So he had a complete neurologic workup, which showed a near-complete ophthalmoplegia. His deltoids were weak. And And this was very odd. We'd never seen anything like this before. And to make a long story short, he was essentially diagnosed with a drug-induced myasthenia gravis based on blood testing. And even more interesting was that when we went back and looked at his pretreatment sample, the same antibody titer that was up at the time he presented to the neurologist was actually present at a lower level before he started. So this is not a person with a history of myasthenia, but probably had a propensity to developing it maybe in life, and we uncovered it by activating his T-cells. And fortunately for him, his neurologic symptoms responded completely on steroids. Unfortunately, he had to come off treatment, and then he progressed and went on to another TKI. But it's just an example of how, while these side effects are not common, meaning the incidence of significant neurologic toxicity in patients is in the low single percent range, maybe one or two percent. They are unusual. This is not something you would typically see with chemotherapy, for example. They need to be looked for. You often need a specialist to diagnose it, and they need to be explained to the patient ahead of time so that they can understand what they're potentially signing up for and what to look for, what to report. A very rare side effect, but certainly an unusual one that is manageable. What was going on with his tumor prior to stopping treatment? His tumor was responding slightly at the time he stopped treatment, but the combination of being off treatment for a while, sorting this out, he progressed during that time because we held his treatment until his symptoms resolved. And have any other cases of this myasthenia gravis or pseudomyasthenia gravis been reported? Yes, they have, and other issues as well that are neurologic syndromes that look like, for example, you know, multiple sclerosis or other issues like a Guillain-Barre type of syndrome, those have been reported with this class of drugs. And while rare, they are impressive when they happen. And they're the type of side effect for which I and many others are very hesitant to retreat a patient in the setting of the neurologic side effects. So someone presenting with this myasthenia or Guillain-Barre is someone who will often get better with immunosuppression or in the case of Guillain-Barre, like an IVIG treatment, but we almost never retreat those patients again. So how about your 56-year-old man? This is a pneumonitis patient who had an unusual presentation. So a person who'd failed IL-2 went on to nivolumab, 
and he came in with a dry cough. We did a CT scan, which showed a new nodule, which we thought could be progression, but because he was symptomatically reasonable and the nodule was small, we weren't sure, so we kept him on treatment. He came in for a subsequent scan a couple months later and had a different nodule, meaning a nodule in a different part of the lung. His original nodule had resolved. So we were a little confused, you know, what to do. Is this disease progression or not? You know, what could this be? This was at a time before we really appreciated the incidence or the potential severity of drug-induced pneumonitis. So this person went for a biopsy to confirm disease progression because we weren't sure. And when the biopsy was read, it was read by the pathologist as bronchiolitis obliterans organizing pneumonia, which is a pretty unusual diagnosis to get on a patient without a history of a bone marrow transplant, for example. But this is what this was called. And we held his treatment. We treated him with immune suppression, with steroids, and he quickly resolved all of his findings. And fortunately for him, unlike the other patient, his disease has not progressed since then. But this is an interesting story where you wouldn't expect, based on the appearance of this very nodular infiltrate, that this would be pneumonitis, for example, but it was probably some drug-induced lung inflammation. It often presents in a much more diffuse way, but the important sort of take-home points is, one, you have to look for this in someone with new symptoms. You often need a CT scan to detect it, and early detection is important because if it's not detected and you continue to treat, then someone can get worse with treatment, and there have been some severe outcomes, although not many recently, due to pneumonitis. Now, in kidney cancer this is and melanoma, this is less of an issue, but this type of finding is going to be more of a concern in lung cancer patients where they're older, sicker, they're sometimes actively smoking during treatment, they've had surgery on the lung, they've had radiation, you know, so a new cough in a lung cancer patient can be a lot of different things. And it turns out one of the things it can be is, you know, drug-induced pneumonitis, while oftentimes not severe, it takes a little bit of work to diagnose it. I actually just interviewed Corey Langer for our lung cancer series, and he was making the same point in terms of these people with chronic lung disease and older patients. How long was this patient actually on corticosteroids? I believe it was about six weeks total. He got better quickly, and we tapered him over a month. So he had a good outcome, but this was one of the first cases where we actually had tissue on a lung inflammation situation. Some of our other patients before this person, a lot of times we saw new infiltrates on scans in the old days. We often treated through those. Sometimes we gave them steroids and continued. It was only until we saw a couple of deaths on trial from very rapidly developing pneumonitis did we become sort of more aggressive about the issues here and say, you know, this could potentially be serious. We need to stop treatment. We need to diagnose it. We need to get tissue. And since then, this has not been a problem in the trials that I've been participating in or the patients I've treated off trials. But it's something you need to understand, something you need to educate your patients about, and something you sometimes need to treat early. So I've already decided I've got to make rounds with you someday because these are really amazing cases. So let's hear about this last one. So early on, I focus a little bit on the negative. I want to go back to focusing on the positive. Patients with very high-grade kidney tumors with sarcomatoid histologies are very angry cancers have been historically very difficult for us to treat. They often have worse outcomes from a survival standpoint. They do worse with our standard TKI therapies, our older immunotherapies. But early on, we saw a handful of these patients who had grade four cancers, who had sarcomatoid histologies that were some of our best responders. 
And this is an example of one of those patients who had failed several prior therapies, went on to receive PD-1 blockade and had a dramatic response, which was durable for many, in this case, years on treatment. And that's very unusual for this field. And when we lumped the patients together on the phase one trial for nivolumab, we found that the response rate seemed to be higher in patients with grade three and four disease than in patients with low grade disease. And obviously a very small sample set, so you can't make too much of it. But we saw a similar thing in the PDL1 trial where patients with grade four and sarcomatoid histology also seem to have an encouraging response rate. So there may be something between this connection between grade and outcome, which would be very encouraging for our patients because we don't have a lot of good treatments for those patients. But then it begs the question that you asked before, why is this? You know, why are some of these patients responding? Why are these patients with this aggressive disease responding? We've known for a while from our colleagues at the Mayo Clinic that PDL1 expression has been connected with poor survival and with very aggressive histologies, high grade. So maybe all of this is, is just grade equals more PDL1 expression. If the ligand is there and there are T cells recognizing the tumor well, when you put in a blocking antibody, you get a better outcome. That could be all this is. But another thing that could be connected to the high grade is the number of mutations in the tumor. As you mentioned before, some of the activity that we've seen in certain tumor types seems to be in tumors that have higher mutational burden when you look at them as a group. So for example, if you look at the number of somatic mutations in lung cancer, in bladder cancer, in melanoma, those are some of the most mutated tumors in oncology. They also seem to have the highest response rates with this class of agents. Typically, kidney cancer is not all that mutated, somewhere in the mid-range of tumors, but maybe these patients with high-grade tumors, maybe some of them have more mutations, and maybe because they have more mutations, more of these mutations are producing what we call neoantigens, which are being presented to the immune system, which then can be recognized. So in some ways, it's these highly mutated tumors that are producing more proteins that can be noticed by the immune system, seen as more of a threat, so they create an immune response which would otherwise be ineffective unless you come in with a PD-1 or PD-L1 blocking antibody. So that's a potential story that might exist. There obviously needs to be a lot more work done on that in future trials. So what happened with this 51-year-old man? So he's still in response. So he got the anti-PD-L1 agent? Correct. So his response is still ongoing, and he's now off treatment. And we'll see how long that response lasts. But we've seen durable responses, some even off-drug patients with very aggressive histologies with both PD-1 and PD-L1 blockade. So final question. We just got back from the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, and I've been hoping slash praying that maybe checkpoint inhibitors were going to finally come into breast cancer, not to mention prostate and colon. But they did have a report of a small number of patients with triple negative breast cancer at San Antonio. And I heard you know, different kinds of reactions to these data. And I'm not really sure exactly how people reviewed this report overall, but I saw four partial responses and one CR to pembrolizumab, and I got all excited. What are your thoughts about that? Maybe also the biology that's going on here. Well, I know less about the biology, you know, why there may be a connection in breast cancer. It's from what it seems from the data that I've seen is it's probably a similar story as we've seen in other tumor types, which is more PDL1 expression equals a greater likelihood of response to these treatments. I was just thinking in terms of what you were saying about poor differentiation and mutations, triple negative, right. as opposed to say ER positive, HER2 negative. 
Absolutely. It could be a very similar story where this aggressive tumor, more mutations, more of these neoantigens being presented to the immune system. The story could be quite similar. And what we're seeing here is a very bad tumor with not a lot of great treatments that a subset of these women with this disease are having durable benefit, and many of them had failed multiple prior treatments. Now, obviously, same caveats as we always use, small group very selected patients, so the outcomes may not be as impressive when we get to larger groups of patients. But you're still seeing that same principle, which is some patients with dramatic, durable responses. So you're seeing proof of principle that immunotherapy is active in a very bad-acting type of breast cancer. Can we build on that? You know, And what I like, as I mentioned before, what I like about immune therapy is there's an opportunity for what we've learned in kidney cancer and melanoma to potentially apply to breast cancer. Wouldn't that be exciting? Because we're really treating the immune system in these patients. We're not necessarily treating the tumor. So maybe what amplifies a PD-1 blockade response in melanoma will also work in breast cancer. So then our subset of patients who benefit will be greater. And that would be tremendous. But obviously, a lot more work needs to be done. But where there has been smoke in the case of melanoma and kidney cancer, there has been fire. I hope that's the case with these other tumor types. But ultimately, two things need to happen. We need to get better understanding how these responses happen, what combinations make sense, but also identifying the patients who should get it. Because right now with the current treatments, it's still going to be a small portion of the population that get these dramatic benefits. 